Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this group of people and the opportunity to be gathered around your word together. And just to sit and to listen to to these ancient words um, and expect um, that your spirit is still speaking through them, um, that your presence is still mysteriously here with us. Yeah, and that you desire to be known here. And we pray, Lord, that would, that would stir us to, to be attentive, um, not to what I'm going to say, uh, not to evaluating what's about to happen here, um, but to honestly considering what it is you might be speaking to your people in this moment. And just guide us, uh, draw us into to deeper relationship with you and to deeper faithfulness as disciples. Um, and we pray all these things in, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you guys would stand, we're going to read... Uh, Deuteronomy 12, verses 1 through 14, actually. You can follow along on the screen. They should, yeah, they should have it there in your Bibles. Moses says, These are the decrees and laws you must be careful to follow in the land that the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has given you to possess as long as you live in the land. Destroy completely all the places on the high mountains, on the hills and under every spreading tree, where the nations you are dispossessing worship their gods. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and burn their Asherah poles in the fire. Cut down the idols of their gods and wipe out their names from those places. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. But you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. There bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, what you've vowed to give and your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. And there, in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your families shall eat and shall rejoice in everything you have put your hand to, because the Lord your God has blessed you. You are not to do as we do here today, everyone doing as they see fit, since you've not yet reached the resting place and the inheritance the Lord your God is giving you. But you will cross the Jordan and settle in the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. And he will give you rest from all your enemies around you so that you will live in safety. Then to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for your name. There you are to bring everything I command you. Your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, and all the choice possessions you have vowed to the Lord. And there rejoice before the Lord your God. You, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levites from your towns who have no allotment or inheritance of their own. Be careful not to sacrifice your burnt offerings anywhere you please. Offer them only at the place the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. And there, observe everything I command you. The word of the Lord. Amen. You guys can be seated. So, if you were around last week, Jonathan and I sat here together and we did something different than we normally do. Uh, It wasn't uh, a question and answer sort of thing where we're all like talking congregationally. But Jonathan and I were having a conversation about the nature 
of what Moses is, is telling them to do. We were talking about this idea specifically, the troubling notion of, of conquest, which is something maybe you've wrestled with as you've read through Deuteronomy or, or Joshua. The idea that God is saying to his people, you need to enter into this land and to fight in order to possess that land from all of these other nations that are there, to dispossess those people of what has been theirs for a long time. And that's, that's a little uncomfortable. We talked about that idea and how we understand it and what that looks like. But chapter 12 is a, a transition into something new entirely and, and probably what is the most familiar section of the whole book, the giving of the law. Moses is laying out the law for them once again. And it, it really helps us to, to better understand everything we've been talking about, whether that's this conquest idea, all the instructions God's giving them as they go into the land, or what is ahead in terms of the giving of the law. It helps us to understand what we're finishing and what we're about to step into. And Moses, in chapter 12, is teaching us about worship. Worship and what it's supposed to look like in the life of the people of God. Worship is what he wants to talk about in transition, and that's on purpose. This is where he comes on purpose. Because if you think about it, like the whole conversation on the nations and why they can't stay there, why they can't enter into that land and just live peaceably, God knows that's not possible. Why is that the case? It's all really about worship. There's an issue in terms of belief and faith and, and worship. These other nations worship other gods, and they do so in ways that are offensive and problematic in the eyes of God. This is how he's explained it. Because these nations understand God differently, they worship differently. They get worship wrong, ultimately, because they, they've gotten God wrong. They've misunderstood the nature of God, right? And, and we know this, right? If you believe that God is angry or insatiable, that he cannot be satisfied, that he's violent, and this is always his relationship toward humanity, well, then your worship will reflect that belief. Your worship will be characterized by fear. And that is what their worship has always looked like. And if you read to the end of, of chapter Chapter 12, we didn't read all the way. Well, you get down toward the end. Moses will use as the prime example of this issue the idea of child sacrifice, something that Yahweh has always forbidden. He never allows his people to do this. I mean, obviously, you could argue that that's what he's asking Abraham to do. It is what he asked Abraham to do and then promptly stops him from doing. They see God wrongly. They misunderstand God so severely, they believe that he is so terrible that he requires something so terrible from them, even the life of their own children. They get worship wrong because they've gotten God wrong. And ultimately, because they're getting worship wrong, their whole lives ultimately are wrong. They're in disorder and disarray. It's a problem. Their lives are violent unjust, broken. And that's not unique to them. That's not unique to Canaan. That happens in Israel frequently. And so as 
And Moses begins this whole new portion in the sermon. As he's about to step into to all this list of laws, which sometimes we dismiss and we don't really know what to do with. Why are we talking about laws, right? We've already heard this. Moses, as he's transitioning to that, wants to bring worship to the forefront. How we understand worship, right? This whole collection of laws is ultimately about making the people of God unique among all the other nations. They're distinct. They're separate. We say holy. They're holy, set apart, different than all of these other nations. They are to be distinct from all the other nations. But if they misunderstand God, like these other nations do, if they begin to, to see God the same way, if they misunderstand what worship looks like, if they take up the same worship practices as all these other people, it becomes problematic. They will not be able to live rightly. They will become violent and unjust and broken over and over again. This is why Moses is bringing us to worship. Because apart from worship, the law and this life that we're called to live, it all just kind of like crumbles. And it helps us to see something. Like whatever we're going to say about life and how we're supposed to live in these commandments that Moses is giving, many of which we don't live according to any longer because we're followers of Jesus and not of Moses, Whatever our thoughts on all of that is, like Moses is helping us to see, worship is the beginning of the law. Worship is the, the foundation of a holy life. And apart from it, everything else begins to just fall apart. That's what Moses wants to talk about. All of this that we've been talking about that is ahead, Moses wants you to see, it's really all about worship. And when it comes to faith or to worship, what we find most often is a failure of imagination. What we believe about God, our misunderstandings of God, it's all really a failure of imagination. Our minds are too small, and we begin to imagine things about God based upon who we are, based upon our experiences, such that we begin to imagine that God is someone he isn't. I'm glad to swap. It's all good. Worship ultimately... The whole point is to all world different and, and distinct from all these other nations and the way they see it. Worship allows us to reimagine what God is actually like, not based upon our experiences about what we've seen from humanity, but based upon his scriptures, based upon what he's spoken, right? Worship is, is meant to be like a recalibration. It's a reorientation of the whole of our lives around who God actually is and what he's doing in this world. Worship is memory. Worship is, is memory for the people of God. It's how we remember. And if you read Deuteronomy, you'll see this. One of the, the biggest emphases of the book of, of Deuteronomy is this word in Hebrew for remember, zakar. And then it's parallel. Don't forget. More than any other book in the Torah and almost more than any other book in the Old Testament. I think it's second only to like Jeremiah. It's repeated over and over again. Moses is saying, remember, don't forget. Remember, don't forget, right? Because they've learned this lesson. Throughout their history, they've been learning this lesson that they are a forgetful people, that we are forgetful, and worship is memory. 
That's what's happening here. Without worship, we're prone to forget. Without worship, we lose our memory of who God really is. We begin to believe something about God that isn't true. We believe things about God that are really based on our circumstances, based on our feeling, based on who we are at the moment, constantly changing, ebbing and flowing, and our lives are thrown into disarray. And what Deuteronomy is offering us is this alternative vision of God. From what you've seen in your culture around you, an alternative vision of God and an alternative vision of what worship can look like, about what our lives can ultimately look like if this is true of who God is. Now, like the passage, as you heard, it begins with this harsh reminder. The first four verses, three verses, remind us that they are to go into the land and to destroy Every semblance of false religion is to be removed from the promised land. And this is necessary not because the people there are any more evil or messed up or broken than the people of Israel. It's not that. It's because these religions all perpetuate a lie about who God is. And it's a lie that is particularly pernicious, right? It's hard to resist and it creates all kinds of practices that we would reject that we see as wrong, that God sees as wrong. And Israel cannot believe this lie. So they have to remove every other false notion, every other idea about God from the land. It's not about people, it's about ideas. And we know this. Um, it's very hard to conquer people. It's even harder to conquer ideas. And God is telling them they have to remove it. They have to, as the people of God, reveal a different way of life, a different way of worshiping, a different way of understanding God. That is the only way it can be undone. And the phrase that's repeated in the chapter, it happens in verse 4 and I think verse 31. The beginning and the end of the chapter, Moses says, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way. Don't take your cues from them. Don't understand God like they do. Don't worship like they do. There's an alternative way, a distinct understanding of who God is and what worship should look like being articulated, right? Moses tells them, bring your sacrifices and your gifts, your offerings, your tithes. Bring all of it into the presence of the Lord. Bring all of these things into God's presence, that sounds a lot like the way these other nations worship, but that's not how they worship. And Moses is, is drawing attention to this, and you, you could say that, that all of the Old Testament is drawing attention to this. Canaanite faith and religion is built around idols, right? It's built around the idea of, of, of idols. And that's a problem I think all of us could say, because the, the issue with idols, with these objects that are made, is that they can never fully express God's character, His nature, His substance, who He really is. They always fall short of what God is actually like. He cannot be contained in this image, right? So you can't image God in that kind of way. It doesn't work. We talked about this weeks ago from Genesis, actually. But this is different, the way they understand things. Not only is it a problem because you can't express fully who God is, it's a problem because you say something else entirely about God. Not only are you not getting God right, you're saying the opposite of who God really is. 
if you come to worship one of these other gods, if you come to the temple of, of Baal, what you find there is not Baal himself. You find a symbol. You find a representation. You find a placeholder who is there in the absence of this God. Because the idea is Baal or Asherah or Molech. These gods, they, they're in heaven. That's how it works. That's what deity is like. The gods are in the heavens. We are here on earth. And our hope is that we can draw their attention by bringing these things in worship. But they're not present there, obviously. The idol is to remind us of them. But they are absent. I was thinking about it this week. Idols are like the substitute teachers of religion. You guys know what I mean? Like, some of you may have done substitute teaching. I don't know. Anybody done substitute teaching? I have never done substitute teaching. Like, it's an impossible task. Like, let's just all acknowledge it, and that's what we all need to be telling our children all the time. It's an impossible task, and it's made even more impossible because from the moment the day starts, we give them a list of names, completely unfamiliar to them, and we say, call them all out and get it right. Or else the children will, you know, just chew you up, right? And the names on the list are like mine. Some of you guys are like, I mean, I know Kyle, but his last name I just don't bother with, okay? It, it looks kind of strange. Like some of you guys have known me for months, maybe years, and you're like, I'm still not quite sure how you say it, right? The teacher's reading it off. Kyle Kilgore. Kilgore. Wow. There is a G in my name, but it's silent and it's at the end. Somehow you've moved it to the middle and you've added an R in there somewhere. Like, how did this happen? Right? Kyle Kilbo? Why is there a B now? Teach? I don't know how this happened. How did, how did we get to Kilbo, right? And the substitute teacher is just as frustrated. Looking at this list of names, thinking, can I just get a Miller or a Smith? One of the Joneses, maybe? But I'm stuck with Kilbo over here. And, like, like what am I supposed to do with this? The substitute teacher is completely clueless. They've been dropped into this foreign land, and they're just supposed to survive it. They serve only one purpose, right? The point of the substitute teacher is to be a living, breathing, responsible human being who is there, present in the classroom, in the absence of this person who does know what's going on. They are present in the absence of someone else. This is the way idols function. And Yahweh says, that's a problem if you imagine me that way. Yahweh is not that way. Moses offers us a, a unique vision of what Yahweh desires and what Yahweh is like. When you bring your sacrifices and your offerings to Yahweh, you will find no representation of him. You will find no placeholder, no symbol. He forbids it. You won't find a placeholder there in his temple. You will find the real presence of God. This is what he's like. And it's a frightening thing that his presence is there. It requires all of these rules, right? Because God is so holy. You will not find a placeholder. You will not find a substitute. You will find that God is fully present. He is the God who is present. He is not absent, distant in the heavens somewhere. He not only desires to be present, he insists on being present among his people. And that is what the law is all about trying to make that possible. These other gods are, are, are worshipped by the nations around Israel and they are either incapable of being present in this way or unwilling to be present in this way. The picture that you're given of God and of deity is that the gods aren't willing to come and to be present with broken, 
sinful humanity. Those gods are distant. Yet Yahweh desires to be near. They can't stoop to this level, to this world. But Yahweh desires to be nowhere else. In verse 7, Yahweh says he wants to come to the table with us. We bring all of these sacrifices and offerings and gifts. And he says, gather with your families there in the presence of Yahweh. Gather at the table with your God. Right? And this is like a unique idea, even in the, the Old Testament, even in, in Torah. It's only happened once. There's this cool story. Maybe you're not familiar with it. Uh, you're familiar in like Exodus 19 and 20. Moses goes up Mount Sinai and he receives the law, is the story that we're told. He comes back down the mountain. Another time, though, he goes up the mountain in Exodus 24 with the 70 elders of Israel. And there's this cool story. And it's just like this very kind of like passing moment. Where in Hebrew it says, they ate and they drank and they saw God. It doesn't necessarily mean that they literally looked face to face at God. The picture is they ate and they drank. They shared a meal with Yahweh himself. They were there in his presence. Not just Moses, but the elders of Israel. And now Moses is starting to like expand that. In verse 7 he expands it. In verse 12 he expands it even more. He says, bring your sons and your daughters. Okay, bring your family. But bring also the male and female servants who are yours or who you know in your community. Bring even the Levites that you know from your towns because these are the poor. These are the people who don't have an ability to accumulate wealth because they have no allotment or inheritance for themselves, not much to pass down from generation to generation. And God says, bring them. Everyone is being welcomed into the presence of Yahweh. This is the way God desires for it to be. And if you think about it, like religion in the ancient world, it functions the same way religion does in our world. Religion tends to favor the wealthy. It tends to favor the privileged of our society. This is how it works. The most fortunate members of society have a way of looking the most pious. Who else can afford to bring sacrifices like this? Who else can afford to do this with any kind of frequency? Most people can only do it rarely. They can only do it when it's absolutely necessary or required of them. But there are other people who will be able to bring thank offerings, gifts that nobody else can bring, and they will appear more pious because they have more money. And God will show no favoritism, he says. I want you to bring the people who don't have as much to offer. He's intentionally inviting even these people to be at the table with him. Yahweh is unique. He says, bring them all. He's given us all a privileged seat at his table that we don't deserve. He's given us a seat at a table where we don't belong. Like when, when Jesus teaches, do you remember in Luke 14, he tells this story to the, the, the Pharisees, or he gives them a scenario more like, right before he gives them the parable of the great banquet. He says, hey, the next time you're at a banquet, here's what I think you should try. When you walk in and you see the table there and everybody's about to sit down and eat, you should choose to take the lowest seat at the table. Even though you know you might be worthy of a greater seat, of a place of honor, I want you to take the lowest seat. And it's like Jesus is saying that because he knows the character of God. Jesus is like that because God has always been like that. God has always been humble. God stoops low so that he can be present with his people. God stoops low and somehow has chosen to give us a seat at his table and he's taken the lowest seat. This is the picture that we get in Jesus and this is the picture we're getting in Deuteronomy. And that forces you to see worship differently. 
If God himself is promising to be present when we gather, then it means it's not something I can neglect. The sense is that like worship is something that demands my attention. If God is present to us, then I have to learn what it looks like to be present to him. Not just when things are falling apart, not just when it is convenient, right? Worship is supposed to be like central to who we are. This is the picture we're given. Moses is offering us an alternative way of seeing life and of seeing worship because God is different than we imagined him to be. But Moses realizes there are obstacles, right? There are obstacles for us. There are obstacles for Israel. And on the one hand, you, you see our desires are an issue. When it comes to worship, it's an obstacle. On the other hand, there's idolatry, which I think sometimes feels disconnected from our lives, but it's not. Um, he says, you're not to do as we see here today. Everyone doing as they see fit. You might remember that line from, from Judges. Everyone did as they saw fit. There was no king in the land, and everyone did as they saw fit. It's a reminder. It's reminding us that they've gone back to this way. They've disobeyed. In worship, very often, God is displaced. God is, is pushed to the side by our constantly growing and evolving desires. God is displaced because we have all of these things we want. When it comes to church, our culture encourages us to do this. This is the way we think about worship. We're encouraged to bring all of who we are, our preferences, our opinions or convictions, our experiences, our desires, front and center, and this is how we talk about faith and church and worship, right? And so we ask a number of questions when we come into worship. Do these people look like me? Maybe after a few years, we say, do these people still look like me? Are they enough like me? Do they think like me and agree with me on things? Do they vote like me? This is the way we tend to think. Is the music what I want it to be? Is the preaching profound enough? Is the preaching short enough? Is it long enough? Is it spirit-filled enough? Is the church affirming? Is the church capable of the kinds of programs that cater to my particular stage in life or not? And all of those things are reasonable questions to be asking about church. The problem is they become the only questions we're asking when we're in church. That, that, that's it. That, that, that's what we're dealing with when we come to church. My preferences, my opinions, my desires ultimately displace God. And quietly, God is pushed to the fringes. God is marginalized while we come to the center. And Moses says, don't do as you see fit. It's an intoxicating thing. But don't give yourself to that. That would be the antithesis of worship, to place yourself in the center. Worship isn't about affirming me. It's not about finding me. It's about finding who God actually is and rejoicing in that, in the goodness of God. Then on the other hand, aside from my desires being an obstacle, there's also idolatry, right? Idolatry is an issue in the ancient world. And it's easy for us to say, like, we don't live idolatrous lives in the same sort of way. None of us have idols in our home that we bow down to. That is true. 
it's hard to find a parallel. This breaks down just a little bit in terms of analogy, but I think we all recognize culturally our idols are just more beneath the surface, just as pervasive, but beneath the surface. Our idols are materialism and ease, comfort, uh, luxury, and our prayers kind of revolve around all of this. Generally, we pray a lot about our hope of becoming more, of attaining more. Because if we have more, then life will be better at the simplest level. Like our lives will just be better. Life could be simpler and easier if I had more. I just need more. More has become the God of so many, especially in the U.S. Always more. Maybe it's more money. Maybe it's more like success. Like if I, you know, was more accomplished, if I had more to show for myself at this point in my life, maybe, maybe more stuff, obviously, simple materialism, maybe even more time. There's a point in your life where you begin to realize, like, time is a thing I can't purchase and I can't get back, and I just, I need more of it. If I had more time, then my life would, would be better. And then the next conclusion is that I often make, that we often make, the sense we have is that worship Prayer, scripture, community, relationship, it kind of eats into my time even more. My time is already divided by so many things. And so the conclusion we make very often is what I really need is not this thing that God is telling me I need. I don't need to to be gathered in worship. I don't need to be gathered around the word and around the table. What I really need is more time to myself. That's where I'm restored. That's where I'm healed. That's where I'm revived. That's what I need, more time to myself, more time in the woods, more time at the lake, more time at the beach, more time by the pool, fill in the blank. It's easy for us to believe. I don't know about you guys. There's this moment sometimes for me in Birmingham, I'll see a plane flying over. And maybe if you're having one of those days, you look at that plane and you think, maybe you've never done this. I have. I would rather be on that plane. It would be nice if I was on that plane, right? Because right now, I'm just in this car sitting in traffic. Right now, I'm just in between tasks, and my life is overwhelming. But if I was on that plane, I'd be going somewhere, you know, enjoyable, somewhere different, right? I could go and live a a fantasy, right, for a minute at least. That is where I experience God. That's where I find restoration and healing, right? Travel, richer experiences. Maybe it's not travel, right? Social media is constantly throwing more rich experiences, reminding you how much you need a life like that. And we buy into it. That's what I actually need. And worship for us becomes the thing that makes me feel the best at that time. Worship is what I feel like I need right now. That's the way it becomes. And God is pushed to the fringes, to the margins. And Moses wants us to see worship differently. If Yahweh is distinct from from all these other gods, then he must be worshipped in a distinct kind of way, right? There's a different way of worshipping him. It's hard to to kind of narrow this down because obviously this sounds like something a preacher would say, right? Trying to narrow it down to like three foundational things that worship is because obviously the passage is saying worship ultimately for the people of God is centered around Yahweh. That one is a given. We've already talked about that. But I think in the passage, you see like three things that are kind of helpful in terms of how we understand worship, the way Moses is talking about it. Worship is sacrificial. 
Worship is about sacrifice, ultimately. Worship is, is joyful. It's meant to be joyous. And, and worship is communal. It's centered on community, right? Sacrificial, joyful, and communal. The worship of Yahweh is marked first by this idea of sacrifice or offering. The sense you get from the start is that worship comes with a cost. Worship has always been costly. And everyone has something to bring. Like that's the picture that you're given by Moses, right? Because it's not just the most affluent people. It's not just the people who've had a chance in life to accumulate wealth. No, no, no. Everyone, down to the poor, those who don't have much to show for themselves, everyone has to bring something to acknowledge the goodness and faithfulness of God. Everybody has to make this intentional decision, asking themselves, what does it look, back, look like to, to, to give back something to God that he gave me in the first place? He always was the one who gave it to me. It was not my hard work. We are bought into that idea. We're Americans, red-blooded American dream-believing people, and we think that our worship I mean, our work, excuse me, has accomplished everything for us. And worship forces us to see something different. Everything that we have has been given to us. Worship is, is sacrifice. And it shouldn't be easy or, or painless or convenient. Worship should sting a little bit is the reality of the thing. Because it, it's painful to turn loose of something that you could just hoard for yourself. For the sake of others for the sake of, of thanksgiving before God, it stings no matter what. Worship has always had a bit of sacrifice to it, a bit of pain. But even though worship is sacrificial, even though it's costly, Moses wants you to see that worship is, is joyful. It's centered on not just my joy, but God's rejoicing in my joy. Right? Like, so I am rejoicing, but God is rejoicing in the fact that his people are rejoicing in his goodness. That's the picture that we get. In worship, there is our joy and God's joy all brought together. Rejoicing in this good thing that God has done, right? Joy in salvation, joy in God's provision and goodness, joy in suffering, in the difficult circumstances that we inevitably face. God wants worship to be joyous. Worship is meant to be filled with joy. And he wants to be present to enjoy it with you. This is the nature of worship and what it's supposed to look like. But even as I say it, um, this for me is one of those things I'm constantly having to relearn. Um, joy is not a thing I feel like I always have the greatest capacity for. Some of it's because you know, I am like a, a Northern European stoic right? I, I can't help it. That's like in my genetics. And joy is a thing that sometimes is, is lost on a lot of us. I found myself sitting in this little uh, Ghanaian church a few weeks ago, and they've asked me to preach naturally uh, because I'm a, a pastor, right? So I need to preach. So as I'm sitting there waiting, I find myself overwhelmed with the fact that I don't need to be standing today teaching anybody. I need to be sitting and learning, because what I found about this community, and what you'll find about third world scenarios over and over again, is that these people are not different. They don't talk about life the same way that we do, but they're wrestling with the same things that we are. 
Depression and anxiety are just as common there. They just don't talk about it as much. They probably don't have a therapist, but they're dealing with it. Like they're dealing with pain. They're dealing with suffering, discouragement, and hurt. They're wrestling with it at a deep level. And it would be easy for them to come into worship and just acknowledge that. Like life is really painful and it'll get better some glorious day when the kingdom comes, when I'm in heaven. But that's not what I saw, right? They, they have this phrase they'll say over and over again. They'll talk about, you know, something terrible that's going on in their lives, something difficult about their lives, and they'll say, this is Ghana. This is what Ghana is. This is, this is Africa, they'll say. They just recognize life here is hard. And they can sit there and talk about how hard everything is, and I think that's important. But that's not all they do. I saw joy. Joy characterized worship maybe more than anything. And I think we all understand that, right? Like, I think we know we're supposed to be, you know, happy-go-lucky, and this is the idea we have in mind. But this is a different kind of, of joy, right? And at the end of the day, what we recognize is that sometimes, though we know we're supposed to be joyful, we don't feel capable of joy sometimes. We come here and we don't feel it. We're not capable of joy sometimes, whether in plenty or in want. In seasons where we're celebrating the goodness of God, we don't, we don't really have much of a capacity for it like I'm talking about. God is doing something good. My life is really good. I should be really joyful, and yet... Life is fine. Certainly in, in seasons of want and in loss and of pain, we don't feel like we can really like conjure up joy. And the thing that I'm realizing more and more is that, that joy is not some ecstatic experience you're going to have with the Holy Spirit in a moment. Maybe that will happen. It happens like that a lot of times. But I don't think it happens like that most of the time. And I think so many times we're waiting on joy to happen to us. And what I'm, I'm learning more and more over the last few years is that joy is a discipline. Joy is a, a thing we learn by practice. And the practice that we learn joy through is worship. Worship is where we learn joy. It's the only place where you can learn joy, to come into this mindset of celebrating the goodness of God, of acknowledging regardless of where you are at, that there is something good that God is doing in this world. Worship is where we learn joy. But how can I learn joy? How can I experience joy when worship has become just another in a, a long buffet of opportunities or experiences that are available to me on any given weekend? when I've begun to believe that everything else can satisfy me in the same way. How can I ever actually learn joy? What I find is not joy, but some semblance of joy, the appearance of joy, momentary joy. This is a problem. And that's why Moses highlights this other idea. Worship is sacrificial, it's, it's joyful, and worship is communal. Because the reality is sometimes you don't feel joyful. The reality of your life sometimes is, is that it's, it's not joyful. And you can't fabricate joy. We've seen people fabricate joy. That's part of the reason we, we don't celebrate much is because we don't want to look like those people who are just fabricating it. We don't want to look like the happy-go-lucky Christian, right? We want something else. 
Sometimes we can't make joy happen for ourselves. And so Yahweh says, bring others. Bring others with you. Bring your gifts, but bring others with you into the presence of God. And let their joy stir you into worship. Let their joy stir you to joy. And next month, it may be the other way around. This is the way it works. Worship is communal. Bring others into the presence of God. Bring others with you to the table. This is the picture. When you come into the presence of God, bring others. As the band comes and, and we think about coming to the table, it's, it's something that's so routine for us that we do so often. But this table is not like an, an individual experience between you and Jesus. It's different than that. It's about sacrificial joy together. That's what's happening in this table. The table reminds us that worship comes with a cost, that worship is costly, that it costs us something, but the table's a reminder that it costs God everything. Worship has always come with a cost. For God to be in our presence, it costs something, and it has cost Him everything. Sacrificial joy, that's what you're seeing at the table. A God who sacrifices and who does so joyfully, willingly, for the joy set before him, Christ endures the cross. There's joy in the midst of the sacrifice, in the body and blood of Jesus, broken and poured out. This table is meant to be shared by the, the poor and the privileged alike, by the joyful and, and the mourning alike. This is the table of the God who comes to dwell with his people, who doesn't sit at a comfortable distance but who desires to be in the mess of our lives. This is a table prepared for us by that God who desires to be with his people, prepared by, by the incarnate word himself, Jesus our Lord. This is the picture that we're given in the table. And as you come, you find no placeholder, no symbol, no sign, no representation, What's beautiful is in this simple cup, this simple bread, somehow mysteriously is the very real presence of God. At this table you find God is not absent from your life. He's present. And he desires to rejoice in whatever it is you're walking in. To rejoice with you, to enable us to find joy again and who he is, and his goodness, and trusting that he has something good in mind for this world. That's what we're inviting you to when we call you to the table. So as we worship in these moments, we invite you to come and tear off a piece of bread, come and take a cup, and then move back toward your seats. And uh, as they, they finish this first song, I'll come back up and, and lead us through this together. Let's pray. Father, I ask in these moments that you would, that you would do that work uh, of teaching us how we've misunderstood you. How our imaginations for, for the good thing that you have in mind are just too small sometimes. You are far better than we realize. And your plans for this world are far better than we realize. Help us to see. Would you reshape our worship, God? We acknowledge, Lord, that we have so often pushed you to the fringes 
in an effort to find something good when really we needed to push our, ourselves to the edges and allow you to come to the center. Now, Lord, we don't, we don't want to continue to live our lives as we see fit. We don't want to continue to worship in, in their way, in the way of our own selfish desire. And help us in these moments to see and draw us near to you, into your presence. We pray in Jesus' name.